0: Well, we are going to get into uh, Revelation again here and pick up a little bit where we uh, left off last time when we were together. Uh, we are going to look a little bit back at verse 6, uh, in fact, even a little bit back into verse 5, but if, if I was to title the section that we want to spend most of our time on this morning, it would be Revelation, the abridged version. And that's what we find in verses 7 and 8, and as we we get there, I think you're going to see that the Apostle John, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, really condenses all 22 chapters, all the theology, the entire plot, and everything. He condenses that into these two verses, verses 7 and 8, and there is so much there That is really, really important. We want to see if we can unpack as much as possible. But as I said, we do want to look a little bit at what we didn't finish last time when we looked at the salutation and the doxology that's found in verses four through six. I want to read that, and if you're taking notes, you might want to go back to those notes if you have them with you, and we'll fill in what we didn't get to in the third point. But uh, this salutation and then the doxology that John records is found in verses four to six and he writes this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are bef- who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We looked at those verses last time and saw and not only do you have the needy address, these were seven churches in Asia Minor who were in different stages or different categories of, of uh, spiritual health. Some of those churches uh, were complacent, some of them were compromising, and still others were suffering, and it is to those churches that John addresses this book and then we see in the second half, of verse five, and into verse uh, seven, second half of verse four, and into verse five, we see the provision that is given to them primarily in these two terms: grace to you and peace. And that comes from the Triune God, the one who is identified as the one who is and who was and is to come. That's the Father, and then from the seven spirits who are before His throne, a reference there to Old Testament teaching related to the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, you have in third place in this particular order, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is defined as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then you find at the close of this section, you find this doxology where the provider... And this is Jesus Christ himself, the provider is exalted for his role in the great plan of redemption. We read these precious words, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we didn't get into that a lot last time, so I want to quickly revisit that because those descriptions are so very important. Upon referring to Jesus Christ right there at the end of that triune reference in verse 5, John cannot help but break out into doxology, and he describes Jesus Christ with a very powerful description. He says, "...to Him who loves us." And I pointed out just briefly last time that that phrase is so very important because as we look through the rest of the New Testament, we do see repeated references to the love of Jesus Christ. But in all those other instances, that love is, is extolled for its historical expression on the cross. And so in those other instances, the love of Christ is extolled for what it accomplished in history. And so, for example, you have Galatians 2 verse 20, which extols the love of Christ by saying this, who loved me, Paul says, and gave himself up for me. But here the Apostle John doesn't describe it in terms of its historical expression. He defines it in terms of its present reality. The love of Jesus Christ, this center figure in the book of Revelation, is not just a love that expressed itself one day, one hour, or one one event in history. It is a, a love that continues on into the present. He is one who loves us not because we love Him. He is not one who loves us because we will love Him at some point better and better in the future. He loves us because He is love. And He loves to love. And He loves to love his redeemed. And that love has never waxed or waned. He has never loved us more at one point than another. He didn't love us more on the cross as he suffered for each one of our sins than than he does today. No, that love is constant. It is immutable. He loves us, his redeemed ones. He loves always and forever perfectly. What an amazing love. Now, of course, that is not just an abstract reality. The Apostle John does go on to describe the particular expression of that love in time and, and in space, and we find that as we continue in that doxology. Not only is he one who loves us, but he is one who has released us from our sins by his love. Blood. Here, John does reach back into history and he does point us back to that great once for all act that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And he chooses the term release. He chooses that idea, that action, to refer to the sacrifice and its accomplishment in securing our liberation. We have to realize. For those who are in Christ, we have to realize there was a time, whether we recognized it or not, whether we were young or old, a time before we were saved, when we were in bondage. There's there's no better word to describe it than that. We were in bondage to our sins, and and, and John goes on to say that he released us specifically from these sins, he changed us and in, in that He released our, our loyalties, He released our enslavement from those sins that once so characterized us, and He did so by His blood. A reference to the death of Jesus Christ, that our liberation, our emancipation from the most wretched ruler the most wretched slave driver was accomplished through the sacrifice of his own life. First Peter one verses eighteen to nineteen summarizes this so well when Peter says you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then later on, when we will eventually get into Revelation 5 and that great heavenly scene, we we see the, the the heavens declare the worthiness of this Jesus. We read in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that is our Jesus Christ and you can understand why John cannot help but break into doxology. He continues with a further definition of what jesus is is why Jesus is worthy of such adoration we read in the middle of of this section, the middle of this doxology, that he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, when you read that in light of the previous description, which described us as one-time slaves, now we see the exact opposite. We who were enslaved are now made to be the most privileged of all. We are made to be a kingdom. We are made to be priests. The idea of a kingdom here, notice it's in the singular. It represents that that unifying work which Christ has done to those very uh, recipients of this grace from every tribe and every tongue are brought together into one people, a kingdom who are fit to be ruled by and rule with Jesus Himself, who in the previous verse, if you look at verse 5, Himself is described as one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we are called priests in that individually we are members of a priesthood, intermediaries who stand between God and and men. And you could look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 where he extols that wonderful privilege. That certainly refers. That description in in, in in Revelation certainly refers to our status even now. We we are a priesthood, and and we do share in the inheritance of the one who rules all things. But when John writes this here, what is so very important to note is that we must read this reference. In light of the entire book, this is not primarily or ultimately speaking of our role now as the church. This has a forward-looking description to it, and it particularly comes through in in chapter 20 of Revelation, where we'll see that. I'll read that in, in just a moment. But what the Apostle John does here is say that this is what Jesus Christ has secured for us. One writer puts it this way, he says, During this present age, believers in this world are all priests' intercessors. The priesthood of all believers on earth is a fundamental doctrine of Protestantism. It has been shown from Scripture, however, that believers living in this world at the present time are not reigning with Christ It is in the millennium, after the Lord's return, after the resurrection of the righteous, that we shall be both priests and kings in Christ's earthly kingdom. Now, how does this develop in the book of Revelation? Well, notice a few of the promises that are made to the churches, those seven churches that are mentioned here in in chapter 1 and in verse 4, and then are each recipients of of letters that we read of in chapter 2 and 3. For example, in in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, you have this promise that is made to the church that is uh, in Thyatira. Here, Jesus says says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus actually takes from the Messianic psalm of Psalm 2 and says, listen, for those who are overcomers, a a description of all true believers, to them I will give this privilege of ruling. He also says in chapter 3, verse 21, to the church of the Laodiceans, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. A reference to the promise of future rulership with Christ. And then, of course, you do get to Revelation chapter 20, and and you see this section from verses 4 to 6, where these two ideas of being priests and in a kingdom, reigning in a kingdom, are brought together in the millennial kingdom. John writes this, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. But they will be priests, verse 6 says, of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him for a thousand years." In other words, when we come back to Revelation chapter 1 and this doxology, we see the work of redemption not only described here in terms of its historical past. We see, for example, that he loves us, present tense, and released us from our sins That's past. That's His historical work on the cross. And He has made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. That is a forward-looking reality. That is what will happen to us as His redeemed, particularly in that millennial kingdom. And in light of all that, John says to Him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now having said that, John continues here with these very important introductory statements that start this book of Revelation. And he's not done with some very, very special features before he starts narrating what had happened to him on the island of Patmos. That begins in verse 9. He still has something that's very, very important to say. Like I said, this is the abridged form now of the entire theme or the contents of the book of Revelation given in verses 7 and 8. Let's look at those verses now. Here's what John writes. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, in keeping with this idea of of an abridged form, I'm going to call verse 7 the plot. This is the plot of the entire book of Revelation that is condensed down to one sentence. It's condensed down into what we will see as three particular scenes related to the coming of Christ. And then verse 8 We'll have the, the playwriter, the one who, who writes this, who orchestrates this, the one who stands behind the plot as the one who has designed it all, verse 8. Now, as I said, these verses are important in our understanding of the format of the book of Revelation because this is what is formally called a prophetic declaration. It is, in fact, an emphatic prophetic declaration. There is special emphasis placed on these words with where they are are found, and they are to to gather our attention to them. We We are to focus on these words and realize this is the key to understanding the rest of the contents that come. And consistent with this prophetic declaration, you could call as some commentaries call it, a, a prophetic oracle is given here in verses 8 and 9. These verses are filled with Old Testament texts. Now the language is just all Old Testament language showing that John very much recognizes that he is in the line of the prophets. And he is delivering here a very important declaration to those seven churches Those seven churches that were marked by complacency, compromise, as well as suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now let's look first at the plot, verse 7. John, in his words, writes this, "...Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen." Now, he begins with this word, behold, and this is very common in prophetic writings, that when you come to a, a very important declaration, it begins with this word. It is intended to draw the attention of all the readers or the listeners that what is about to be said is very, very important. And, and this declaration, then, is, as we're going to see, is, is made up of three elements. You could say three, three scenes that take place with the, 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 the event of the coming of Christ. Let's look at each of the three that are given in this declaration. Number one, John says he is coming with the clouds. This is a vivid summation of the imminency of Christ's coming as judge. We're going to see this as we look into it, albeit briefly, it's based on daniel seven thirteen and the even the broader context of Daniel that this statement this first one this first scene of the plot is that the coming of Christ is imminent and his coming is going to be marked as one who brings judgment. Daniel chapter seven verses thirteen to fourteen reads as follows, and you'll see the connection here that 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 is to our text in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, here Daniel says very much in the same kind of vein, he says, "...I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom." that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What Daniel is describing there is, is that inauguration of the messianic kingdom in which the Son of Man will reign from Jerusalem on this earth and will exercise perfect dominion, from the east to the west, north to the south. Now, what's amazing about this statement is that you have two key figures here, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in just a moment, but notice you have the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days. Keep that in your thoughts. But as we keep going, what is important here to note is that the Son of Man appears with the clouds of heaven the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus himself picks up on this in his Olivet Discourse as he describes himself in that second coming. Remember, when Jesus came the first time, he did not come uh, in the clouds of heaven. He came in, in abject humility, being born of a virgin, being born and laid in a manger, being born in that stable But now, He will come in the the clouds. Matthew 24, verse 30. Jesus is already speaking of that future return. And He says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Indeed, if we think of Jesus and we we think of his role in the whole plan of redemption, that there is a title that we can give to him, and that title is, He is the Great Coming One. And and we see that the the history of redemption always revolves around his coming. Now, in the first coming, of course, as we saw when he comes to, to provide that atonement for sin... That that coming is in humility. John the Baptist, for example, says in Matthew 3, verse 11, he says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. And and he knows, and he refers to the Messiah with these words, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He is the coming one. A little later on in John the Baptist's ministry, when he was put into prison, he was waiting for the Messiah to, to make his move. And so in that uh, that expression of his own, his own human limited knowledge, he, he says this, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the expected one? Literally, are you the coming one? Or shall we look to someone else? And of course, Jesus did come that first time in humility. He came that first time to provide the atonement for sins but we also know that he ascended. In fact, here we have in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, another important text that describes his ascent but also promises his future coming. After Jesus had said these things, he was answering questions that the disciples had about the future kingdom. After he had said these things, Jesus, according to Acts 1, was lifted up. "...while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven." Again, a reference to the coming, the return of Christ in the clouds. And of course, if we would read on in Revelation and get to the actual description of that coming, we see that in Revelation 19. Let me just read two verses of Revelation 19, verse 11 and verse 14, describe in part that coming of Christ. Here John records this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Going all the way back to Daniel and and tracing this through, we realize that the idea of coming with the clouds not only means that Jesus' coming will come from above, but that reference to the clouds is also a reference to divine judgment. And we can look at Christ described in these terms with these kinds of ideas. Jesus Christ is that divine warrior. In fact, we can call him the great cloud rider. And that is very much an Old Testament theme that we find in the prophets, that God, when he exercises judgments, he does it through the clouds. Isaiah 19 verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Jeremiah 4.13, behold, he goes up like Clouds, and then his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Nahum 1 verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The cloud here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, is a reference to the imminence of Christ's return to judge. He is the great cloud rider, and that judgment is imminent. Not only do we have a description of that, though, look back at verse 7 of chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, behold, He is coming with the clouds. It's expressed in that present tense way to, to indicate he's already on the way. He's that close. But the second description here is that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is a vivid summation of the the universal extent of this coming. This is not a limited coming that is described here. This is not a a limited event that just a few see. Instead, John indicates that this is something that will be worldwide in its extent. And here, John draws upon Zechariah. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says this, and it's a a reference here in Zechariah in the context to to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, to the different tribes of Israel, who in that day will be renewed, they will be regenerated, and they will respond with great mourning uh, to the reality that the one who is appearing is the same one that they pierced, they crucified. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Notice, they will look. Every eye will see. They will look on me. They will see him. And even those who pierced Him, whom they have pierced. Those three elements in that second description, that second scene, are all drawn from the middle of Zechariah 12, verse 10. Now, it raises the question, who pierced? Who pierced Jesus? Who will be those who see Him? And, of course, we could look at John 19. I won't read this, but note in John 19 verses 32 to 34, and again in verse 37, we we, we have a reference back to Zechariah, and we see it was the actual Roman soldiers who thrust the spear into the side of Jesus. It was the Roman soldiers who were the ones who even before this nailed Jesus to the tree. They were, in that immediate sense, the ones who pierced him. We can also go to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Here, Peter addresses the, the people of Israel and says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. When we look at both, we see there is equal culpability between the Jewish people themselves, those who rejected the Messiah, as well as the godless men who are those instruments used to to nail... Jesus to the cross and to pierce his side. And what John is emphasizing here is that in this coming of Christ, there will be no escaping the apprehension of this one who is crucified for the sins of men. Every eye will see, even those who pierced him. One writer says this, "...all humanity in this sense had a hand in His mortal wounding on the cross, and His death for sinners will be universally understood when He comes in power and glory." John is emphasizing that when this coming happens, there will be universal observation, universal apprehension, that the one who through the ages was mocked as the one who hung upon the cross, they will see Him. Every eye will see. No escaping this reality. And then there is a third scene described here. Not only is He coming in imminent judgment not only will there be this this universal apprehension of Him and what He has done in His atonement, but you also see here, thirdly, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Here we have a vivid summation of the overwhelming emotional impact that Christ's coming will have upon the inhabitants of of this world. Again, it's based on Zechariah 12, verse 10. Now notice the latter part of that verse. We read the first half already, but the latter part is this. Now notice in Zechariah it is referring to the Jewish people, but it's going to be expanded. We read this at the end of Zechariah 12:10, and they, that is the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Jewish people will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, Zechariah chapter, uh, chapter 12, especially if you'd read from verses 10 to 14, make it very clear that the mourning of Israel described by Zechariah in that context is actually a sorrow that is unto salvation, the sorrow that is described there is a sorrow of a, a penitent people that is drawn by God's miraculous leading to a time of nationwide repentance. That's Zachariah's description. But what's interesting to note is that Jesus himself is going to take that concept of mourning, and he is also going to apply it to the inhabitants of the entire earth. We won't read it right now, but Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, sees Jesus take this reference to Daniel 7, verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Jesus himself puts these two prophecies together and describes that the mourning that will be done will not just be by the Jewish people unto salvation, but it will be a kind of mourning that is done by the inhabitants of this world unto death. In this case, the mourning that is done here is a mourning that is more like wailing or lamenting based on fear. And all you need to do is read the rest of the book of Revelation, and one of the common themes through it is the utter hardness of men's heart. Bowl after bowl of judgment is poured on this world. And what does man do? Oh, he mourns. He shrieks in terror, but he does not turn to the Lord. Here's the statement in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He says, beginning in 24, verse power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The implication being all those of the unelect will then be destroyed. And we see that in Revelation 19 verse 15, the actual prophetic description of what this will look like, and this we can understand why, brings the shrieking, the dreading, the lamenting of hard man to the appearance of this coming ruler. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty." Now to this, John then takes the the first part of this prophetic oracle and brings it to a a partial close when he says this at the end of verse 7, So it is to be, Amen. This too, like the very first word, the word behold, is intended to be emphatic. It's, It's like the two bookends that indicate to us, that that statement that comes in between the behold at the beginning and so it is to be amen at the end, that it draws all the attention to the contents and says this is emphatically true. In fact, what we find here in the Greek are just two words, literally, yes, amen. The word yes comes from the Greek, it is the Greek exclamation mark, really, And then the word amen comes from the Hebrew. We already saw that when John wished grace and peace. Grace, the Greek idea, and peace, the shalom of Hebrew. John mixes those two together as other biblical writers do in their letters. And now we find the same thing, the mixture of both the Hebrew and the Greek. The Greek yes and the Hebrew amen all making that center part of that declaration emphatic. What has been prophesied, John is saying, what has been described in that verse is as absolutely certain as it can possibly be. There is no possibility that that will be altered in any way. This is a declaration from a God whose word never fails. In fact, that's what we come to then in verse 8. As John now, in this prophetic declaration, records the words of the originator of this plot, the playwright, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now what begins this particular statement is also... Uh, a word that should uh, that that should cause us to immediately take notice here you have that very famous declaration that is in found in both the old testament and in the new testament that this is a declaration made by deity in the old testament it is god who appears to moses in that burning bush and says those those tremendously shocking words to Moses, I am. We also read that of Jesus in the Gospels where Jesus will use the same formula and say, I am. And that reality has actually led to the the, the debate over who is actually speaking verse 8. And it is very easy to think that this is Jesus who speaks verse 8 And some commentators will take that, but it is best to see as we are going to go through the the titles used here very quickly to see that this is a description of the Father. These words come from the Father's mouth. This declaration is made up of four titles. Let's look at them really quickly. Number one, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. This is the first instance in... Scripture where this exact title is used, although it'll be used again two other times in the book of Revelation, once by the Father in 21, verse 6, and then once by the Son in 22, verse 13. The Alpha and Omega. Those words refer to the very beginning of the Greek alphabet and the very end. And they emphasize, as as we see here, they, they emphasize... Uh, the eternality of God, and this very much is an Old Testament idea, a description for who God is, although in other terms. For example, Isaiah 41 verse 4. In this context of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 48, Yahweh puts himself on the dock. Israel had gone to, 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 to other gods, the other gods of the nations, and God says, okay, let's compare me with those other gods. And one of the key emphases in that comparison is that Yahweh is eternal and the other gods are not. Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am He. 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and And the last, and there is no God besides me. This title emphasizes God's eternality. He is before, He is above, and He is beyond all history. He is history's origin, and He is history's end. But not only do we have that title, we also have the title in verse 8 of the Lord God. This, too, is a very common designation for God the Father in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, verse 2, for example, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the, in the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And this title here emphasizes God's authority. As the playwright to this plot, He has all authority. There is no one like Him. He alone is worthy to reign. Revelation chapter 11 will will draw this out as as the 24 elders in verses 16 and 17 give praise to God the Father, calling Him, O Lord God the Almighty because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Revelation 19, verse 6, another another expression of praise, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And in Revelation 22, verse 5, there will no longer be any night and they will have No need of light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Number three, He is also called the one who is and was and who is to come. We looked at this title used to describe the Father already back in verse 4. We won't spend much time here on this one, but this is taken from Exodus 3 verse 14. Where again, you have that very, very important moment where when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said to God, "Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, "I am who I am, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am." has sent me to you. The idea of who is and who was emphasizes God's immutability. He is the great I am, the one who never changes. And he is the one who in that never-changing, immutable essence is going to manifest that into space and time as he comes through the Lord Jesus Christ to judge this earth. We also find a fourth title that is used here, the Almighty. Another title very common in the Old Testament and usually translating either the Hebrew word Shaddai or the Hebrew word Sebaoth. He is the Almighty or the the Lord of hosts. It is found nine times in this book of Revelation and only one other time in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6.18. But otherwise, it's reserved to the book of, of Revelation. It is a constant Designation for God the Father, and this title here emphasizes God's omnipotence. He possesses dominion over all things and will have victory over all of his enemies. Now, let's step back for a moment and see what is being emphasized in this prophetic declaration. This is what we must catch as we move forward. Number one, the plot, it all has to do with the coming of Christ, and we can define it in terms of those three ingredients. It is imminent judgment, it is universal in extent, and it will have overwhelming impact. That is the the description of the coming of Christ. And then we have the playwright here in verse 8, the great I Am who is the one who has, who has put this story together. And these are the four qualities, the four attributes or perfections that he emphasizes as the one who is the playwright here. He is the eternal one. He is the one with ultimate authority. He is the immutable one, and he is the one with infinite power. As we draw this all back to our understanding of the book of Revelation within its context, why was this so important for the seven churches, and why is it so important for us today? First of all, remember that the churches, as we will find out in greater detail, those churches were complacent, they were compromising, and only a few of them were suffering because of a a good witness for Christ. And we read that believers in all those different categories, whether those whose love has grown cold, whether those who are lukewarm, whether those who had compromised with the culture, whether those who are suffering because of persecution, all those different categories of churches need to be reminded of this, this eternality, this authority, this immutability and omnipotence of God. And we can we can see that for our own lives today. Whether you are a, a believer who's struggling with compromise in this world, the culture is, is too alluring for you, and you're syncretizing the ideas and behaviors into the Christian life and trying to make that work, or, or whether you're just complacent, your love has grown cold, you're like the Ephesians who do a lot of good things and have a lot of good doctrine, but you just don't have that zeal for Christ, that first love. Or you might be one who is walking the right way and facing the consequences. You're reaping the consequences of being a follower of Christ and feeling what the price is that you have to pay. Well, for all of you, this reminder is important. God is eternal. He is before all and will be after all. He is eternal ultimately authoritative. He has has not somehow lost control. He is never changing. He is as he always was and always is. And he has no lack of power. Meditate on those qualities. Those attributes in particular are so very important, both to convict us as well as to comfort us. As well, complacent, compromising, and suffering believers all need reminders of the coming of Christ, that it is imminent in its judgment, it is going to be universal in extent, and, and its impact on this earth will be overwhelming. We, we need to recover that concept. That reality of the coming of Christ should be something that is regularly on our minds and something that does determine uh, our decisions, it determines uh, our choices that we make, it determines how we live our lives today, knowing that this coming is soon. And that will give both conviction, as we're reminded, as some of these churches were reminded in their own time, reminded of our materialism. And how much we love this world. And in other times it will remind us as we suffer that this is going to come to an end. And our Savior, the one in whom we placed our trust, the one whom we've called Lord is coming and He is going to bring retribution. And when we see that in our mind's eye and and we contemplate that and realize one day that will be real That brings us much-needed solace, especially in a culture right now that is growing increasingly rebellious. Let us be encouraged by these things, and let these truths of God Himself and of the coming of Christ motivate you for the right response that you must have. And in closing, I would make that request to you. What, What needs to happen in your own life in light of these truths? Go home today and spend time prayerfully considering that. What does this truth bring to your own life? And let the Word of God have its way. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful for the words of this text which speak directly to our need, though written so many centuries ago to a very different context, a different place in the world, to a different set of churches, we see that these words also perfectly apply to us today. They shock us out of our complacency, and they convict us in our compromises, and they comfort us in the midst of suffering. May you press these words even deeper to bring about transformation, the renewing of our minds as we meditate upon these things and recognize Christ is on the way. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.